You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 16 of The Korean War. In the last episode, we saw how the willful ignorance of the Truman administration was leading to a degradation of the South Korean defence situation. That was not actually meant to rhyme, but as we have learned, this was all part of a cunning plan. To acquire the budgetary increases which were so desired, it was necessary for a war in a certain theatre to proceed in a certain way, and the Korean Peninsula fit the bill perfectly. As we have said, this is neither a quack conspiracy theory, nor is it an attempt by me to engage in some joyful America bashing. 
Instead, as I've come to discover, this explanation fills in the gaps present in several accounts of the war, and it makes sense out of a great deal of conundrums, such as why the Americans ignored the pleas for greater defence spending in South Korea by those agents on the ground, and why the Soviets, for example, remained absent from the United Nations when they had the power of veto to block what happened in Korea. The Soviet Union, as we have also learned, was in on the plan to instigate and engender a war in Korea too, though the aims of Joseph Stalin were those of alienating China from America for the benefit of Soviet diplomacy and power, rather than for the sake of beefing up Washington's military prowess. Indeed, it was somewhat ironic that both Stalin and Truman proceeded with a policy which was in many senses the same, in that it was aimed at provoking the same response from Mao Zedong that of a reluctant but necessary military intervention on the part of the People's Republic of China. Only with the Chinese intervention could the Americans be assured of a drawn-out war and Stalin be guaranteed of the Sino-American hostility that he needed. It was because of these mutual policy aims that Mao Zedong was labelled as the odd man out by Richard C. Thornton, whose book of the same name we have made great use of over the last few episodes. In this episode, though, guys, we continue our coverage of American foreign policy in the late spring of 1950, as some galling public gaffes in Washington, combined with a shocking last-minute discovery, threatened to torpedo the carefully crafted policy designed by President Truman and his Secretary of State, Dean Acheson. Let's get back into it then, as I take you to the 27th of April, where America's South Korean ambassador, John J. Mucho, had arrived in Washington for a top-secret meeting with the different heads of the varied departments of state. Could Mucho, uninformed of the true purpose of American foreign policy and out of Dean Acheson's loop, acquire the reassuring guarantees that he required? Let's find out. The song of the week this week is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. But hear me out, it's not the usual Patreon pledge. See, a little while ago, my other part-time job ended, so I am now looking for a job. And yes, while I am looking for a job, and that's all very terrifying, and I'm relying on my wife, and we're a wonderful team and all that lovely jazz, I thought it made sense to take advantage of the wonderful platform I have, of when diplomacy fails. So with that in mind, if you were to go on the Patreon at this very moment in time and look at the rewards section where it says what you can get by paying a certain amount every month, if you were to hold your breath as you scroll to the very, very bottom of that, you'll see a very interesting option indeed. It's called History Friend for Hire. And what it basically entails is that for $1,000 a month, I know, I know, but hear me out, for $1,000 a month, you can hire me to do something for you. Would you like a podcast made? Are you listening now while working in a corporation or business that would like to write a book, engage in research, publish something, write a blog series, anything? I'm up for it as long as you're up for it and as long as it's in my area of expertise. Either way, if you pledge $1,000 a month, I will be yours for better or for worse, and I'm sure it will be better. So, Do check that out if that sounds like your kind of thing. For more information, you can, of course, email me and we can iron out the cracks, wdfpodcast.hotmail.com. This is my way, guys, of leveraging the podcast to make myself a reliable income. If it does not work out, I won't be losing anything from it, although that option of pledging $1,000 a month still makes me laugh. 
but it makes sense, I think, to take advantage, not in a bad way, of the wonderful platform I have here. And who knows, maybe something will come of it. If it does, great. Head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. And hey, if after all this time you've ignored me asking you to go do Patreon and it's been on your to-do list for ages and you just haven't done it, go and do it. And then you'll be able to listen to 1956, which is pretty darn good. Anyway, so the song of the week this week is actually my favourite song. That's right, of all of the songs that we've got. I know we're only on episode 16 now and we've reached my favourite song already, but it really is my favourite song. It's called Shaving Cream by Benny Bell. It was released in 1946 and it's one of the first songs to ever use the use of innuendo and if you don't know what I mean, you'll see what I mean in just a sec. Enjoy guys and we'll be back with episode 16 of The Korean War. Oh boy, here we go. Sad story to tell you. It may hurt your feelings a bit. Last night when I walked into my bathroom, I stepped in a big pile of shaving cream. Be nice and clean. Shave every day and you'll always look keen. I think I'll break off with my girlfriend. Her antics are queer, I'll admit. Each time I say, darling, I love you, she tells me that I'm full of shaving cream. Be nice and clean. Shave every day and you'll always look keen. Our baby fell out of the window. You think that her head would be slit. But good luck was with her that morning. She fell in a barrel of shaving cream. Be nice and clean. Shave every day and you'll always look keen. Ambassador John Mucho had spent the last few months pleading through cables and memos about the plight of the South Korean defensive situation and the resulting vulnerability of Syngman Rhee's regime to North Korean attack. Now, Mucho at last had the opportunity to communicate his concerns in person, and the picture he was able to present was both rosy and disconcerting. It was rosy because Mucho argued quite reasonably that for a country only 21 months old, Rhee's leadership and South Korean entrepreneurship had made great strides in industry, agriculture and domestic reforms. In addition, Mucho said, Rhee had accepted the recommendations of the Joint Commission on Economic Stabilization and significantly reduced his spending and costs, particularly in terms of defensive budgeting. Rhee had attempted, Mucho said, to be as compliant as possible, but the result was that his regime was more vulnerable than ever. Having searched for ways to justify their determined non-intervention policy in the previous weeks and to cloak the policy in a certain language, Washington had landed on the idea of inflation, as we saw in the last episode, and on the plain fact that inflation was just wreaking so much awful havoc on Seoul. If Rhee was blind to these facts, then that was his problem, but for the sake of the economic stability of South Korea, it was insisted by several departments that Syngman Rhee would have to sit tight 
and avoid spending any silly dollars on such frivolous things as military defence. What a fool. Mucho argued that Rhea had been remarkably compliant with these demands, in spite of his personal objections and beliefs. It was heartening, Mucho said, to see the effective training of the South Korean army, which had been successful in controlling the constant flow of saboteurs and special agents from North Korea. Mucho noted perceptively that the Korean people have the will and ability to defend themselves, and the United States should provide the missing component which will enable them to hold on to the area. Korea is a symbol of US interest in Asia, and it is important to help the Korean people keep their freedom and independence. In his 12th of January 1950 speech to the National Press Club, Dean Acheson had alluded to the US government providing the missing component to any country in need of such assistance. In short, Mucho was only asking Washington for the very thing which the Secretary of State had once promised to give. Yet although in terms of practical time that commitment had been made less than four months before, in terms of policy, Acheson's speech to the National Press Club was a world ago and it had been made in a time when maintaining a balance in Asia was the desired goal. Since that date, a great deal had changed unbeknownst to Mucho, and since he remained out of the loop, his pleas, however well-researched and justified, were always going to fall on deaf ears. By allowing Mucho to come to Washington and by making it seem as though he had the floor, the Truman administration could present their government as one which was listening to the re-regime, and thus the immediate panic in Seoul could be temporarily abated, and any accusations that Acheson was steering South Korea wrong could be put to bed. Publicly, at least, Acheson and company were listening to what South Korea had to say. Privately, all was still proceeding according to plan. Indeed, everything was proceeding smoothly until a report less than a week later appeared in the widely read magazine US News and World Report. It was in this weekly bulletin that an interview with Tom Connolly appeared. Tom Connolly was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and was thus clued in on the situation unfolding in South Korea and, of course, the genuine policy line which was being pursued by Washington. Connolly was therefore in the loop, and only a few months before he had referred to South Korea favourably in terms of American strategy in the Pacific, designating Seoul as a testing ground for other Asian countries who wished to keep out of the communist system. The views he put forward in the magazine, though, in an issue published on the 2nd of May 1950, seemed to represent a complete 180. Connolly was asked by the interviewer in the course of that report whether... The suggestion that we abandon South Korea or not is going to be seriously considered. Tom Connolly, without seemingly thinking it through, answered in the following way. I'm afraid it is going to be seriously considered because I'm afraid it's going to happen whether we want to or not. I'm for Korea. We're trying to help her. We're appropriating money right now to help her. But South Korea is cut right across by this line. North of it are the communists with access to the mainland and Russia is over there on the mainland. So that whenever she takes a notion she can just overrun Korea. Just like she probably will overrun Formosa, Taiwan, when she gets ready to do it. I hope not, of course. In response to such a stunning statement attesting to his lack of confidence in the South Korean situation, Connolly was then asked... But isn't Korea an essential part of the defensive strategy? 
Not so, according to Connolly, who replied, No, of course, any position like that is of some strategic importance, but I don't think it is very greatly important. It has been testified before us that Japan, Okinawa and the Philippines make the chain of defence which is absolutely necessary, and of course any additional territory along in that area would be that much more, but it's not absolutely essential. On the following day, the 3rd of May 1950, Dean Acheson was before a news conference where he was asked to comment on what Connolly had said. Deftly manoeuvring around the issue, Acheson gave a brief history of the Korean Peninsula and the recent Soviet obstructions, and noted how under the UN Commission, the United States had gone forward with other nations in establishing South Korea, that the United States has been and was now giving them very substantial economic help, military assistance and advice. When asked to comment more directly, in other words, answer the freaking question, Acheson said that he doubted very much whether Senator Connolly took a different view from that which the Secretary had just stated. In short, Acheson provided something of a cloak to the naked pessimism of Connolly's statement, but it is important to note that he did not explicitly seek to contradict him. But you might be wondering, as was I, what could be the reason for letting Connolly lift the veil on South Korea and explain America's actual position on it in the event of war? Was Washington attempting to further bait the North and the Soviets into the trap? Indeed, it seems as though the incident was coordinated. Connolly's remarks shattered Syngman Rhee's confidence, and Acheson's comments resembled a small comeback, but the South Korean president was understandably shaken nonetheless, and if Soviet or North Korean officials were watching, the inferred message would have been clear. Moscow could very easily have interpreted the incident as one American official just slipping up and not holding his tongue, while another attempted to conduct some damage control. During the course of such damage control, his own dispositions towards South Korea prevented him from deliberately lying, and thus the apparent thrust to bolster South Korea was far less impressive than it may have seemed. By one account, Rhee was calmed by Acheson's response to Connolly's remarks, but according to the American Charge d'Affaires in South Korea, the president was still seething about what Connolly had been allowed to say. Everett Drumwright, the aforementioned Charge d'Affaires, was on hand to privately record the South Korean president's reaction in the days that followed. Drumwright forwarded a picture which gave a clear account of how Rhee was actually feeling in the first week of May 1950. Drumwright noted that Rhee was deeply bitter about the incident, and that the president regarded it as an open invitation to the communists to come down and take over South Korea. He, Syngman Rhee, wondered how any man in his right senses, not to mention Senator Connolly, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, could make such an irrational statement. In the days that followed, Drumwright sent his full report to Washington, wherein he noted that It seems clear that the President's faith in the determination of the United States to assist Korea in the event of North Korean aggression has been shaken to an appreciable extent by Senator Connolly's remarks, by failure of the United States thus far to take any discernible action to meet Korea's request for air support, and by what appears to be the failure of the United States thus far to supply Korea with military supplies and equipment under the terms of the Mutual Defense Assistance Program. The foregoing factors, coupled with the persistent talk that Korea lies outside the US Far Eastern Strategic Defense Zone, are having a decidedly unsettling effect on Korean officials and the public. In the meantime, Ambassador Mucho was still in Washington. 
He met with President Truman on the 4th of May, and he came away with positive impressions of the President's determination to help South Korea. In a meeting with the armed service directors of the Pentagon on the 10th of May, Mucho felt compelled to point out the gaps in military assistance, and he insisted that it was imperative that Washington plug these gaps, so that, in Mucho's words, our stake in South Korea can be more adequately protected. Mucho pointed out that the lack of any defence against possible attack by air and a similar lack of sufficient coastal patrol boat facilities, in both of which respects the Koreans themselves, from their own funds, had been endeavouring to provide a remedy. If the previous word of the day was inflation, now the word of the day was NSC 8-2, a report drawn up in March 1949 in a very different time. This policy paper had declared the intention of the United States government to provide South Korea with the means to defend itself against a comparable arms buildup in the north. NSC 8-2 had provided for a South Korean army 65,000 men strong, a 35,000 man police force, and a patrol boat fleet filled by a further 4,000 men. All told then, 104,000 men would be recruited to the South Korean armed forces once the American soldiers withdrew from the peninsula in June 1949. In the event though these plans were not carried out, and the genuinely anemic underspending of Washington in South Korea, even before NSC 68 became secretly adopted as the state policy, ensured that the South Korean army contained 50,000, not 65,000 men, and that these men were all in desperate need of new equipment, and above all, planes. In addition, NSC 8-2 was supposed to commit Washington to match whatever the North could field. This wasn't so tough in March 1949, when North Korea's offensive capabilities were comparatively small, and the United States could more than match its size and strength. Yet, since Washington was appraised of the Soviet deals with Kim Il-sung, it was generally accepted that an influx of Soviet aid would be en route to beef up the North's armed forces considerably. Under such circumstances then, it followed that Washington would have to match those forces of the North, which were said to be increasing at a rapid rate. This requirement was critically important to how the United States justified its policy, because if it was acknowledged that the North suddenly possessed vastly improved offensive capabilities, then Washington would have to match them, because this was written down in NSC 8-2, and according to Acheson, they were following NSC 8-2. Yet at the same time, if such northern increases were poo-pooed as mere rumour and conjecture, or were dismissed as the paranoid imaginings of a beleaguered South Korean regime, then Washington could claim to have a legal policy basis for its inaction. According to the Truman administration's interpretation of the Korean situation then in spring 1950, the North was not arming itself at a rapid rate, and thus Washington was not required by the entitlements of NSC 8-2 to respond accordingly. It was, in fact, well within its rights to do nothing. Of course, even while Ambassador Mucho was faced with NSC 8-2, he knew full well that the situation on the ground in Korea was unlike that which his superior claimed. Furthermore, because NSC 8-2 made no provision for an air force, Mucho was repeatedly faced with objections from those he talked with when the issue came up. How could we possibly send you planes, they would say, when such aid is not stipulated in NSC 8-2. Mr. Mucho, are you asking us to go against official government policy? 
Well, Mr. Mucho, if you are, then I can only recommend you to the State Department, since this is plainly a political matter and is out of my hands. In such a way was Mucho pawned off, while the unofficial order of the day among those in the know in Washington was to stall for time. To his credit, Mucho's persistence paid off to a degree because he managed to get some military officials on side. Some were willing to submit Mucho's requests to the Department of Defense if he would drop the question of outdated planes being used in South Korea. This element of Mucho's protest wasn't included in NSC 8-2, and those that Mucho met with wanted to do everything by that report's guidelines, but the ambassador would not let up offering the quite reasonable objection that that report was obsolete in light of the developments in Korea, Mucho was likely sick of hearing from one group of bureaucrats that South Korea had to abide by the provisions of NSC 8-2, when he knew full well that a chasm now existed between the forces of the North and South, which of course violated the very stipulations of that report anyway. As long as the men at the top pretended as though nothing was wrong though, they could offer the arguments that the provisions in NSC 8-2 were being fully abided by. In reality, Mucho was of course right. NSC 8-2 had been drafted over a year before any such shake-ups as those which occurred in American foreign policy in spring 1950 occurred. Everything had changed and NSC 8-2 was thus as outdated as those F-51 fighters which the US government was attempting to junk after their Japanese service. Only if NSC 8-2 was revised, the acting director of the Mutual Defense Assistance Program insisted, could such supplies or equipment be supplied to South Korea? And then what? Seoul may have monies to pay for the aircraft now, but these planes would need repairs, they would need servicing, and they would need refitting as time went on. Who was going to pay for all this? On top of this, the acting director insisted that spare parts for the F-51s would be very hard to come by since they were obsolete and no one was really making them anymore, which would in turn make these planes very hard to repair. In short, all of Mucho's superiors were telling him that using planes designed for the scrap heap was impossible, and yet Mucho would not give in, even offering to hand over a bailed-out Soviet-made aircraft in return for some investment in South Korea's military situation. That was how desperate he was getting. Above all, Mucho needed something he could bring back to Seoul, something that would prove to Syngman Rhee that America had South Korea's best interests at heart, and that it understood its difficulties. It hadn't been easy over the recent weeks for President Rhee, as he had been subjected to frequent attacks on his character and accusations which condescendingly alluded to proof of rampant inflation in his fledgling country that he was simply too blind to see. The process was exhausting and immensely demoralizing, and made Rhee doubt, as the month of May went on, whether the Americans were actually serious about defending South Korea at all. The different public gaffes and the mixed signals coming from Dean Acheson's office can't have been all that reassuring, as of course they were not meant to be. It is not clear precisely how coordinated the press strategy for the Truman administration had been in creating the image of America's relationship with South Korea for the rest of the world. Certainly, if Washington wished to convey its affinity for Rhee's regime, there were far better, stronger ways to demonstrate that. The lukewarm enthusiasm which any mention of South Korea seemed to evoke from President Truman's circle, publicized by Connolly's stunning declaration of unwilling abandonment of the South Korean state, 
all contributed to sow doubt and distrust between Seoul and Washington. With the goal always at the forefront of this policy, Acheson was not accidentally causing such problems, he was feeding into them. The less supported and encouraged the South Koreans were felt to be, the less they could be expected to stand their ground. The more plainly demoralised their ally was, the more likely the Soviets and North Koreans were to get wind of the situation. In other words, while it caused Ri no end of stress, the apparent gaffes were part and parcel of the play that Acheson and his allies were writing. For the North to strike in tandem with Moscow, South Korea had to look like the most attractive piece of bait possible. Yet, as Acheson and Truman and those in the know appreciated, there was a fine line between baiting in the enemy and so scorching your own earth that the war was over before it began. If South Korea was too weakened, or if its defences were too easy to overcome, then the North could reach the opposite end of the peninsula before the United States and its allies even had time to scramble. For a long time, such a threat seemed highly implausible. The North may have had the superiority in technology, manpower and supply, in fact in literally everything, but they did not have the capacity to strike lightning fast down the length of Korea and to push the Allied dream into the sea before they could land. Incredibly enough, thanks to the Soviet aid delivered in escalating portions in Pyongyang in the spring, this situation had suddenly and shockingly changed by mid-May when it became apparent to United States intelligence that an excess of 100 Soviet T-34 tanks had been delivered to the North. Now, the North Korean dictator did have the capabilities to launch a rapid strike down the length of the peninsula. Mindful of the impact of the German Blitzkrieg, Washington imagined hordes of tanks zooming down south before any force could be mobilised to stop them, thus ruining the chance of creating in Korea a drawn-out war. Now the chickens had come home to roost for Acheson, as he would have known that the Republic of Korea army had received no anti-tank weaponry in 1950, and before then only sporadically, and would thus have been helpless against a sustained armoured assault. There wasn't even a single anti-tank mine in the Republic of Korea's arsenal. All of these weapons were stored in Japan. Any mass mobilisation of anti-tank equipment would startle the North, perhaps egg Kim Il-sung on before the West had the chance to prepare, and potentially on the other end of the scale, so blunt the North Korean advance that a long war in the peninsula proved unnecessary. If the tank threat was real and sudden, then it presented immediate problems to Washington, who would now have to walk yet another policy tightrope. For the moment, though, Acheson and his circle were able to mostly ignore the reports and dismiss them as merely South Korean hysteria. On the 10th of May 1950, intelligence from South Korea reached Washington regarding a large buildup of armour on the Korean border. As if reluctant to acknowledge any significant threat to its plans, Washington failed to inform the Korean military advisory group on the ground in Seoul about the sightings of T-34s, and the KMAG would not begin mentioning the armoured columns themselves until the 5th of June, seriously late to begin considering the prospect of defending yourself against a formidable armoured column. Indeed, when Washington first learned about the tank build-up, it didn't take the news seriously, since it came from South Korea's acting Prime Minister and Minister of Defence, Shin Sung-mo. In a press conference in which the Korean press was removed and only the American media outlets were allowed access, Shin presented his case for immediate American action, noting a massive buildup of soldiers, a huge influx of new North Korean veterans after having served in the People's Liberation Army, and above all the swollen armoured divisions 
constituting 155 medium tanks, the T-34s, and 18 light tanks, the press conference was nothing less than one of the highest civilian authorities in South Korea, behind only Syngman Rhee himself, urging American action. In actual fact, Shing Sung Mo had underestimated the North Korean forces, a fact which would become apparent in due course. For the American charge d'affaires, Everett Drumright though, the numbers seemed exaggerated. They had to be. Reporting back to Washington, Drumright noted the exercise had been designed to elicit American military aid, but he argued that Shin's presentation was full of vague and contradictory statements, and he reasoned that he wasn't convinced by the picture painted for him. If this disbelief of a South Korean official by a foreigner who was far less well-placed to know the realities of the situation seems surprising, then what really stands out is Drumwright's apparent 180 in opinion. Only a few weeks before, after all, this same charge d'affaires had been urging Washington to send more military support to Rhee's regime. He was reporting on the emergency and the impending disaster that would follow if the North invaded. Yet here he was now, poo-pooing the threat posed by North Korea, and discounting the opinions of South Korea's Minister of Defence. If we were building a conspiracy for you here, this would be the point where we'd say that Acheson got to Drumright and brought him on side to what was going down. But what actually happened was far more straightforward. The charge d'affaires was telephoned by the State Department and just ordered to play down the threat which North Korea posed, as well as to discredit all talks of a northern invasion. Drumright, an obedient civil servant, did as he was told. There was no need to tell Amir Charge to fare what was going down when simple marching orders would do. The really amusing thing, if that word can be used in this context, was the impact of Drumright's sudden about-face, which led him to contradict statements he had made only a few weeks before. Having noted the North's constantly increasing military potential in March, Drumright now attempted to claim that the North's military strength had not changed since NSC 8-2 had been drafted the previous year. If this sounds ridiculous, then we should bear in mind that this was the communicated policy of Washington, and NSC 8-2 was the public and interdepartmental justification given for why no urgently needed increases in South Korea's defensive capabilities were provided. The mid and lower levels of the American bureaucracy and foreign affairs offices were fed this line, and since they were not in regular receipt of evident increases in North Korean strength as Acheson certainly was, they had no reason to doubt their superiors. The selective hearing of the Secretary of State was also applied to the media. On the 12th of May 1950, two days after Shin Sung Mo presented the bleak southern situation to the foreign press, Rhee was complaining aloud to Drumright about the state of affairs, and he would not listen to the Charge d'Affaires' insistences that the reports had been exaggerated. Perhaps such insistences on Drumright's part were all the less convincing because he was himself having trouble believing them, and he was merely parroting what he had been told to say to Rhee by his superiors. In any case, Rhee was determined to express his own views to the press as well, and he did this with Drumright looking on on the 12th of May 1950. North Korea is concentrating troops near the 38th parallel, Rhee said, but added that, We can do nothing. We will solve this matter through the United Nations and the United States. Rhee did take time to attack those American friends who insisted on expressing the useless worry that if the United States gave weapons to his government, 
South Korea would invade North Korea. May and June, Rhee prophetically announced, would be dangerous months for Korean freedoms. Determined to sound off on Washington in a public forum, but determined also to give credit to men like Ambassador Mucho and General Lynn Roberts of the Korean Military Advisory Group, Rhee rebuked Washington for having one foot in South Korea and one foot outside, so that in the case of an unfavorable situation, it could pull out of our country. I dare say that if the United States wants to aid our country, it should not be only lip service. General Roberts and Ambassador Mucho have worked to obtain more arms for Korea, but people in the United States are dreaming. More striking than Rhee's defiant tone is how the New York Times treated the incident. With all the potential to inflame public opinion at home and compel a greater investment in South Korea, one would have had to have looked to page 14 of the 11th of May edition with a small print subheading, South Koreans Warned. Incredibly, in this 33-word summary of what the Minister of Defence had said on the 10th of May, there was no attempt to follow up the story by adding in Rhee's impassioned urgings that we've just heard. Shin Sung Mo's report to the foreign press was thus underrated and buried by the New York Times, and President Rhee's rebukes were not even mentioned at all. As Rhee's government was seeking to make their case, Mucho continued to meet with his peers and superiors in Washington, ignorant of the fact that everything had already been decided without him, and that he was purely there to stall proceedings. Arriving back in Seoul on the 18th of May, Mucho was gobsmacked to receive a vague cable from Atchison's department, inquiring as to how the South Korean government would use the planes, which Mucho had urgently requested. Laying out a sequence of complex questions which Mucho could not have had all the answers to at that time, the cable asked how Seoul intended to use the F-51 fighters, and whether it possessed the spare parts, pilots and fuel necessary to run them. This was the same delaying tactic that Atchison's department had used before, when they had asked Mucho what Seoul could have needed further economic aid for, and what Rhee's regime intended to do with it. Mucho now saw that the State Department was attempting to stall the whole question of increased aid to South Korea over the aircraft issue. Four days later, the American ambassador to South Korea wrote back to Washington, underlining the fact that both KMAG and the Economic Cooperation Agency had recommended increased military aid, in line with the fact that NSC 8-2 allowed for the South's forces to be at least on par with the North, and this parity was no longer the case. Mucho had, you'll remember, managed to convince at least some of his less informed peers of the necessity in upping the aid to South Korea. Since those that approved didn't know of the secret blackout on all military assistance to South Korea in line with the end goal, Asheson's department had to pick up the pieces, which of course meant stalling for time, so that Mucho's recommendations and days of hard work were pushed aside and ignored. Through the sticky issue of obsolete aircraft supply from Japan, Atchison could hold up Mucho's proposals and would be entitled to do so on the basis that he was only adhering to NSC 8-2, which didn't recommend any aircraft deliveries to South Korea and which Washington was officially respecting. The final message to leave South Korea in May was a telling one. Since the 20th of April, Atchison had neglected to respond to anything that came from the Chargé d'Affaires Everett Drumwright's address, and this trend continued when the now co-opted Drumwright sent a full report drawn up by General Roberts, the chief of the Korean Military Advisory Group. 
Roberts was one of the highest ranking military officials in South Korea, and his message to Washington was resoundingly bleak, highlighting all of the shortcomings of the Republic of Korean Army. Roberts emphasized the fundamental problem that too many men were using such a small supply of equipment, and that it was thus falling to pieces and leaving the army more vulnerable. General Roberts's warnings couldn't have presented a more straightforward set of problems. It was, after all, the general's job to identify the problems affecting his command and to eliminate them, and it wasn't like he hadn't sent a message like this to Atchison before. Yet, General Roberts would surely have realised by now that Washington seemed little interested in eliminating any of his problems, nor would Atchison even bother to reply to this cable sent on the 29th of May, 1950. It should thus come as little surprise then that, within this report, Roberts also sent his resignation letter. He wished to be gone from his post by the middle of June at the latest, and he wished to exonerate himself from such a sorry state of affairs as much as he could. As Richard C. Thornton noted, the reason for Atchison's silence was the fact that had he acknowledged the need for military assistance, he would have been duty-bound to provide it since it was the purpose of the United States to leave South Korea vulnerable to the first blow. However, Atchison was deaf to all entreaties from Seoul. Yet, as we alluded to earlier on in this episode, the final week of May 1950 was also the period when the creeping sensation began to sink into the State Department. The South Korean Defence Minister had not been exaggerating after all. Tanks in vast numbers and a strategic problem far in excess of that which the South Korean army was equipped to handle had been confirmed by too many American intelligence sources to ignore by this stage. American stay-behind agents in the north, as well as the permanent US submarine watch on Vladivostok, from which point all the Soviet tanks and materials were shipped, had sent the intel home in increasing numbers. The tightrope walking policy was thus needed, and Atchison now had to answer the question of how to defend a country without defending it too much. In the next episode, we'll see how he managed this delicate balancing act as the final days of peace and the final moments of innocence slowly drained from the Korean Peninsula. Until then though, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to The Korean War, episode 16. Thanks for listening, my lovely history friends and patrons, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 